Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 29th, 2016, and this is episode 1720 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, 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 time for the big show of the week, the Expert Council Q&A. It's almost going to be the Tim Glantz hour because Mr. Tim was a piker. Yes, he was a piker this uh, month, and uh, he was a little bit of a piker in December. So we had three questions undone. He did them all this week. So I have three from Tim Glantz alone this week. I think I have seven or eight total, and I might take one myself today. But this is the Expert Council Q&A. Now, how do you submit content for a show like this? You send me an email, and in the subject line, you put TSPC Expert. TSPC space Expert. And then you say, my question is for expert council member fill-in-the-blank. Please use their first and last name. I'll be more likely to find it when I'm searching for it, when I put the questions together at the beginning of the month. Then say, my question is, write your question in a single sentence with a question mark after it, and that's the summary of your question. And then give all the details you want below that. I will then select two questions per month per council member, send them off to them, and if they don't pike out, we'll get their answers to you in that coming month. This is the formula. you got to do that. If you don't do it that way, it might not get found. And some expert council members get more than others, so just know that your council member of choice may not be available. So if you think, well, I could either get this answer from A or B, put both their names in there, and I'll pick one for you. Okay. Ah, before we get into your stuff for the Expert Council, let me remind you how you can find out who is on the Expert Council if you're new to the show. Go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. And look up today's episode, 1720, and you'll see a whole list of them there. And if you want to know even more about them, go to our Meet the Expert Council page. You can find that by go to the survivalpodcast.com. Hover on the About thing, and a drop-down will show up, and one of those links will be Meet the Expert Council. Hey, do you want to go to the survivalpodcast.com, but you don't want to type out all those stupid letters? Did you know that you can just go to tspc.co? tspc.co will take you straight there. It's a short link that redirects to the main website. That'll save you some typing, especially on those little phones and devices like that. Just I'd throw that out there for you today. Oh, another thing. I, a lot of you guys that are on Android phones, we have an app. I don't have one for iPhone because I didn't make the app. I didn't commission the app. A guy came to me and said, hey, can I make an app for Android and I'll give you 10% of the ad revenue off it? I said, sure. He did that. We have an Android app. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and you'll see a little medallion for it in the center thing if you're an Android user and you can get our app. I'd love to have an iPhone app made if somebody wants to do it. I'll do the same type of rev share agreement if somebody wants to make a, uh, an iPhone app that iPhone, uh, the iTunes will accept. I don't really know how that works. I just know how to use apps. So I'm happy to put one out there if people want it. Next up, let's hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure that the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning-fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day, and I hear, Gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. 
that's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training, but... Even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later. It was February of the next year that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original survival podcast sponsor, because they were first and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original survival podcast sponsor safe castle rule remember they also do a discount membership program it's 49 and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life but they are such awesome sponsors they give that away to all members of my support brigade effectively paying for your first year of the msb right there check them out today again safecastle.com Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1720 because the episode is 1720. And I have three for you from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com today. I have The Genius of Villainous is Born. I have The Mississippi and the South Sea Bubbles Burst. And I have Astronomy is Going to Hell. That one's pretty short if you want to read it yourself. I'm going to read The Mississippi and South Sea Bubbles Burst. Remember, tulip mania, a scheme to reduce government debt, has blown up in the faces of France and England. France has been swamped with debt, so Comptroller General of Finances John Law created the Royal Bank of France, like the Fed, and placed the government revenues in the bank. He uses paper money insured by the bank to buy the Mississippi Company. He then grants it in, tra in a trade monopoly in Louisiana, as well as mineral rights. He authorizes the sale of stock in the company and doubles the population of Louisiana by freeing French prisoners, chaining them to prostitutes, and shipping them to Louisiana to build a new world. Everyone is going to Louisiana. 
People go wild buying shares in the company until they begin to lose confidence in their investments. There's a run on the bank. There's not enough coinage to cover their account, so John Law makes a run for Brussels. He will live out his final days in Italy as a professional gambler, which is almost the same thing as being a fractional banker. My take by Alex Shrugged. England tried something similar with the Bank of England and the South Sea Company. Government debt was repaid in shares of the new company. Unfortunately, when England went to war with Spain, the Spaniards seized the assets of the South Sea Company. Spain was also an investor. Instead of shutting the company down, England sold even more shares. The future King George II was a director in the company. His father, the present king, was involved. Even the king's mistress had stock. Oh, baby. The stock price jumped from 100 pounds to 1,000 pounds in a year, which made people nervous. Stockholders backed away, and the stock price plummeted to 150 pounds. Sir Isaac Newton said, I can calculate the movement of the stars, but not the madness of men. His niece lost the modern equivalent of $2.4 million, million dollars. After investigation, widespread fraud was discovered. Imagine that. The company struggled along for years thereafter, but the damage was done. Uh, the more things change, they stay the same. I don't need to add my take on this one. There you go. I mean, all of this stuff with trading and the markets and all and this gaming the system and the people in charge being able to insulate themselves from the real damage, you know, it's it's just a typical thing. Um, but at least John Law had to run away and be a gambler in Italy. Today, the people that actually cause all the problems, they pay a fine far less than the money that they've made, and they just go on with life, and we all think it's okay. Yeah, history repeats itself. Remember what I've taught you about history, guys, over the years. What have I always said about history? They tell us that we study history so we can learn from the mistakes of the past so we don't make them again. And what does Jack Spirico say? We study history to see all the things that dumbasses did in the past because we know full well sooner or later some dumbass will do them again and we need to be prepared for it when it happens. That's the truth about history, my take by Jack Spearco. Uh, next up, let me remind you guys about the Members Support Brigade. Hey, if you like the show that I do, you know, putting together stuff like this with the Expert Council, all the effort I put into it, consider supporting my work. You can do that by becoming a member of my Members Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more there. It's $50 a year or 18.3 cents an episode. You get a lot of other great content. You get every episode of the show ever produced in convenient zip files that you can download and get all 1,700-plus episodes. You get all kinds of great stuff, including discounts to over 60 companies that are selling things you're probably buying anyway, meaning that by the end of the year, you've got your $50 back plus some. I know one guy told me in my Thai coffee alone, he gets back half of his uh, cost of the MSV just in discounts on some of the best coffee he's ever drank. So we have the tactical, the practical, and just the cool stuff available for you as a discount of the Member Support Brigade. So check it out if you're not a member yet. So with that, uh, let's get into our first question of the day. This one's actually for Tim Glantz, and I call him a piker in the beginning of the thing. And that's my, that's my inside joke with the council guys. Don't think I'm actually being hard on anybody for that. But when they take a long time to get their stuff back, I put them on the piker's list. Tim actually had to deal quite a bit with the Department of Making You Sad, uh, i.e. the government, with some uh, revenue questions, I think was what he told me. So he was, he was an excused piker this time. This question, though, actually it isn't from last month. This is a question that Tim got directly and decided it would be a good question for the show. So I haven't even heard the question yet. I do know it's on uh, ponchos. So, hey, let's uh, hear from Tim on military surplus ponchos. Hey, Jack, and everybody out there at the Survival Podcast. This is Tim Glantz from Old Grouch's Military Surplus, and I've got an expert panel 
question, uh, answer from Dan, who he actually sent me this one direct, but I get this question a lot, so I figured I would go ahead and do it and send it in to Jack. Uh, and he sent me a question on poncho liners. He says, why do, does a poncho liner not have an opening for, the, for your head so you can put your head through it and wear it inside the poncho? Well, let me give you a little background. For those don't know, who don't know what a poncho liner is, it is the single greatest thing the U.S. military has ever issued. It is basically a quilted blanket that is cut the same size as a poncho. And it's called a poncho liner because it is intended to be put inside the poncho to turn it into a lightweight sleeping bag. And for that purpose, it has ties on it, ropes, that are spaced at the same place where you'd find the grommets on a poncho. You tie it into it, you roll up around in it, you snap your poncho together, and you've got a lightweight sleeping bag. Now, the reason there's not a slit in it or a hole in it where you can stick your head through on the military issue ones is that they've tried it, and I've actually tried a commercial one and, and found the same things because they did make some commercial ones with this option, and found uh, the one big problem is that since the quilted material goes all the way to the end of the poncho and it's held in by fabric ties, if you wear it in the rain with the liner inside it, Moisture comes around the bottom edge of the poncho, hits that quilted liner, and just starts wicking its way up. And the thing starts soaking up, soaking up, soaking up. And before you know it, you're walking around with a big, wet mess inside your poncho on top of you. And it weighs about 10 pounds. So, they're just, uh, while it seems like it's counterintuitive to not be able to wear it in the rain, it really doesn't work. It's strictly intended for a sleeping, comfort, keep you warm type device. And for that, uh, you know, you won't ever find a more comfortable piece that is the same weight and same quality and same size. Uh, about the only real way to improve the poncho liners in the last few years, they've started putting zippers in them so that you can still have it unfolded and lay it flat like all you guys that are vets out there remember your poncho liner. But then you can zip it up all the way around so you can use it as a standalone sleeping bag thing or tie it in, still tied inside the poncho for the extra layer of uh, water and wind resistance. But uh, unlike the old old days, you know, when you could kick your leg and it, your foot ends up hanging outside of it because it's open on the bottom and sides, when you do this, uh, you're up inside it, and it really helps keep the warm air in there better. So, uh, yeah, that's why uh, some guys will modify them, but I've never met anybody who modified their poncho like that to do that that was happy with it. Except for the guys that were like out in the high desert who really just wanted it to wear for warmth and the poncho material to keep the wind out and weren't worried about water. Uh, so, yeah, and if you don't have a poncho liner in your bug out kit, uh, get one. They're great for car emergency kits for winter weather. They're great for your bug out kit because it's warm and it's versatile and it's lightweight. And uh, like I said, you can ask any veteran out there and they'll tell you, if they don't tell you it's the greatest thing the military ever invented, It'll be on their top five list for sure. So I'm sending Jack a link to a really nice one we've got in the stock store right now uh, with a zipper that we've got to close out where London Bridge Trading, uh, I'm sure a lot of you heard that name before, they make really good stuff. They made a whole bunch of these improved ones with zippers, and they made them in ACU camo and then got stuck with them when the Army dumped ACU. So we got them for a steal of a price, and we're offering them at a steal of a price. So uh, check that out, and uh, hope everybody has a great day. 
Good stuff from Tim, and I do have links to his website where you can find both the standard USGI uh, poncho liners like I had when I was in the military, and I agree. They are one of the greatest things the military ever invented for, for general issue gear anyway. Um, they're, I think they're 30 bucks, and then it's quite a bit more for the ones with the zipper, but I'd, I'd like to have one of those. So I have the, uh, the, the, the page that he has those for sale on as well, too, for you in the links. Uh, instead of going three Tim glances in a row, let's throw a question here to uh, Nick Ferguson so we create some variety throughout the show. This question's on pecan trees. It says, Nick, what should I consider when selecting pecan trees uh, for north-central Louisiana as far as variety and planting location? Thanks, Brady. Here we go. Cool, Brady. I live in Louisiana, too. Probably not too far from you. All right, pecan trees. I'll try to keep this simple and not get too sciencey on you guys, but I have to explain the unique pollination requirements of pecans, or you might accidentally plant pecans, wait five to ten years, only to find out you planted the wrong ones. No one wants to have that happen. So I've got to use some weird words, but there are two types of flowering kind of patterns for pecans. There's protandrous and protogenous. And all that means is that there are male and female flowers on each pecan tree. And some of those, all of, all of pecan trees will have either male flowers that shed their pollen before the female flowers are ready to accept pollen, or they'll shed their pollen late, after the female flowers have already done their thing. And what this does is it forces outcrossing on your pecan trees, and it it really reduces the amount of self-fertilization. Some of them have a little bit of cross uh, self-fertilization that happens, because there's a little bit of a... Um, a crossover in between those those weeks where the the males are shedding pollen and the females are getting re- the female flowers are getting ready to accept pollen but generally um you're going to want to have a late pollen shedding and an early pollen pollen shedding now if you only end up with late pollen shedding trees then you're going to have very poor to no nut production unless you have an early pollen shedding tree nearby that is able to pollinate your tree. So the best thing to do is, let's say you're going to have four uh, pecan trees. We'll get two late pollen shedding trees and two early ones. And that way you have good uh, good cross-pollination and If one of those late pollen shedding trees dies, well, the other one will do the job of pollinating your early pollen shedding trees. So with that said, let's get on to some actual varietal um, recommendations. Um, so we have Elliot, and the trees produce a round, small nut. That's around 67 nuts per pound with a thick shell and bright, well-flavored kernel. Nuts have excellent cracking characteristics. Trees bear in six to eight years. Elliot has excellent resistance to scab, but is susceptible to bunch disease. This variety has been widely planted in South Louisiana. Now, in South Louisiana, 
scab is a lot bigger problem than in North Louisiana. Next is candy, and the trees produce early ripening small nuts, around 66 nuts per pound, with thick shells and attractive kernels that have high quality and good flavor. Trees are vigorous with dense dark green foliage and a strong framework. Those are all really nice things. Trees begin to bear in four to five years, but will tend to bear in alternate years as trees get older. And what that means is they'll have one year of high production and then the next year of low production. That might work for you. You might not like that. So keep that in consideration. Next is Melrose. Trees are prolific producers of medium to large oblong fruits. Uh, nuts, sorry. 53 nuts per pound. That's pretty good. With bright, attractive kernels. Nuts have excellent Cracking qualities, trees bear in six to eight years. It has moderate resistance to scab and shuck disease, but is susceptible to powdery mildew and bunch disease. And this variety is recommended more for northern Louisiana because it often develops severe scab disease in southern Louisiana. So keep that in mind. Next is Sumner. Trees produce attractive medium to large nuts, 43 nuts per pound, with a light, good quality kernel. Trees bear at a relatively early age, five to six years, and is recommended for yard plantings because of excellent scab resistance. And of those, I don't know if you noticed, but I listed them in order of how many nuts per pound you get. Elliot gets 67 nuts, Candy is 66, Melrose is 53 nuts per pound, and Sumner is 48 nuts per pound. And... The lower the nuts per pound, the bigger the nut actually is. So if you want really small pecans, then get uh, Elliot and Candy. If you want larger ones, get Melrose or Sumner. Next is early pollen shedding trees. And we have, I have three of them for you. Caddo, Oconee, and Jackson. So we'll start with Caddo. And the trees are prolific producers of football-shaped, medium-sized nuts, that's 60 nuts per pound, pointed at both ends with thin shells and bright, attractive kernels. Nuts have excellent cracking qualities. Caddo has moderate scab resistance and good bunch disease resistance. However, it is susceptible to black aphids and powdery mildew. Oconee is spelled O-C-O-N-E-E. And the trees are good producers of large, oblong nuts, 48 nuts per pound, with thin shells and attractive kernels, nuts have excellent cracking qualities. Oconee has moderate scab resistance. And last is Jackson. And these have the largest nuts out of all of these. And the trees are consistent producers of large nuts, 39 nuts per pound. That is almost twice the size of the Elliot. With medium shells and bright, well-filled, excellent quality kernels, nuts have excellent cracking qualities. Trees have low alternate bearing tendencies. Jackson has moderate scab resistance. So there you go. Great question, Brady. Email me and let me know where you are because I live in central Louisiana. You can email me, nick at homegrownliberty.com. And if you want to, head over to homegrownliberty.com where you can check out my new podcast. I've got my first episode up. And as I'm recording this, the second is uploading and getting ready to... Um, publish so likely 
My second one is Up By The Time This Show Airs. And honestly, guys, I don't know how Jack does this every day and has time or brain power to do anything else. I'm amazed how much work it is to do a show like this, and Jack's shows are over an hour long. Anyways, I'm real excited to have my podcast up and going. I'm talking a lot about spring garden planning right now and seed starting because that's what I'm doing a lot of currently. But I'll be branching out into a lot of different topics. Anyways, I hope you all have a great weekend. I'll talk to you later. Let's uh, hit up Mr. Tim Glantz here with another question. This is one I kind of found interesting, and I think I probably need to get a few of these. Freaking Tim's bad for my wallet, man. Every time people ask him about stuff and he comes on here and tells us about it, I'm like, I want some of those. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Tim, what can you tell us about the 81-millimeter mortar tubes? How tough are they? Are they fully water weatherproof? And what are some creative ideas for how preppers can use them? Uh, this is from Frank, and this is uh, an interesting one, too. It's one of those things like, I didn't, I forgot all about those. Maybe, yeah, I should probably get some. So, Tim, take it away with mortar tubes. Hey, Jack, and all the TSP listeners out there. This is Tim Glantz with the Old Grouch and Military Surplus with an answer for Frank's question about the 81-millimeter plastic mortar tubes out there on the surplus market. Uh, he asks, how waterproof are they first? Uh, and if you've got a good O-ring gasket in it, they are fully waterproof. Uh, we tested that to the point of even filling one with water, hanging it upside down, letting it sit here and see if any comes out. Uh, if it keeps it in, it'll keep it out. Uh, so as long as you're getting them with a, a fresh gasket, they're going to be waterproof. And how durable they are. I found they're fairly durable. The one weakest point on them seems to be the caps. If you beat them around and bang them by the cap, the caps can crack. Uh, and especially in super cold weather, uh, if you beat around those caps, they can crack. Uh, I've still patched a uh, cracked cap with some silicone adhesive, uh, goop glue that I like to use, and kept it waterproof. Uh, but uh, that is the one weak point. And then he asked about uh, what creative uses people have found. Uh, one of the most popular uses for these has been welding rods. Because if you're storing welding rods, you need to store them and keep them dry. Water will get uh, into the coating on the welding rods and it'll make them useless until you heat them and uh, dry it out. So you can get your nice dry welding rods, put them in there, and keep them dry because they're just the right size. Another good use for them, uh, a lot of people use them for documents. If you've got bigger documents that you roll up, like land plats and stuff like that, or maps that you want to carry around, that you want to have protected, these are a good way that you can put them in there, and you can still be carrying them behind the seat in the pickup truck and not worry about them getting damaged. I've had some Jeep owners that had collapsible fishing gear that they had that was small enough to put in it that they could put it up on the roof rack. And uh, I've had all kinds of uh, people come up with interesting uses for them. So best thing I can say is get a few and, and play with them and see how they are. Uh, although uh, by the time this airs, we may be out of stock on them. But I'll be trying to get more, so just keep an eye on the website at oldgrouch.com. Thanks for the question, and as always, Jack, thanks for the show. Let's go ahead and roll on through the Tim Glantz hour this episode. And uh, I've got another question for Tim Glantz on using large uh, mill surplus tents as temporary housing, and temporary being a little bit longer than a couple of days. We're talking maybe a year. Uh, I have my own thoughts on this. I'm going to listen to Tim and come back and tell you my experience of actually living in a tent like this for six months with seven other guys. Hey, Jack, and everybody out there in Survival Podcast land, this is Tim Glantz with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an expert panel question and answer on big tents. Uh, got a question from Kent, who 
asked about my thoughts on using tents as temporary housing. He means long-term temporary, about a year or so, maybe while you're moving up to establish a homestead. Uh, because he doesn't want to drag a trailer behind and doesn't think, uh, think that would be as portable. So he's looking for something that's fairly mobile, uh, that two people can strike, uh, big enough that you can live together long term and don't break out into a knife fight and that can be heated and want to know some uh, suggestions on that. Uh, first, I'm going to give you a little background on military tents. There's uh, three series of tents. There's a bunch of other ones that come off of these, but these are the three main ones. You've got your GP series of tents, the older ones that came out in the 50s. They made them up through the 90s and into the 2000s for some of them. Uh, the GP small is a hex-shaped tent that's about 17 feet across. There's a GP medium, which is, you know, probably the most recognizable tent and one of the most common military ones of that era, which is a 16 by 32. And there's a GP large, which is a monster 18 by 52. Um, all of them are canvas on the earlier ones. Later, they were made from nylon uh, or vinyl, more correctly. All of them are supported by wood or metal poles that could come with either one and have to have the ropes off the side with the stakes to hold the poles upright. The next evolution of those tents is a series called the MGP, MGPT system and a multi-purpose, general-purpose tent, I believe. I don't remember what the exact acronym is. But those are an 18 by 18 tent, or it can be expanded with two of them back-to-back for an 18 by 36. Also pole-supported. They're aluminum poles. Uh, most of the ones I've seen are not collapsible, so they're fairly long poles. Once again, they have to have the stakes out there driven in. Then there's a series of uh, tents that came up simultaneously to that, uh, well, started in the 60s, that are a metal frame tent. And the most common one is a 16 by 16 size. Uh, you can also see the 16 by 16s back to back, and you can make a 16 by 32, 16 by 48, 16 by 64. You can keep going with them. Then there's a temper tent as they call it, made on the same design as that one, but it is a 16 by 20. So you have 16 by 20, uh, 32 by 20, and so forth and so on. My recommendation for long term is that you get one of the frame-supported tents. My reasoning for that is twofold. Number one, it is much easier to put a floor under a frame-supported tent, be it concrete or be it uh, wood, raised platform. If you're going to live in any of these tents long term, you need a floor in it. It's not a debatable thing. Uh, if you're in an area that gets a lot of rain, otherwise you're going to be living in mud. If you don't get a lot of rain, everything in your tent that you're living in is going to stay dusty all the time. That'll make you irritable. That'll result in those knife fights you were worried about. Um, those tents, the 16 by 16s, uh, there's a lot of brand new covers out there on the market the government surplus, but they've been scrapping the frames and crushing them, so frames are harder to find. Uh, if you call the guys that deal in tents, uh, you can oftentimes find the uh, the covers really affordably, uh, especially for what they are and what they originally cost. If you're a very good carpenter, you can get the measurements from a frame and actually just haul the lumber and build your own frame to go under it. I've had several people do that. And one of the other advantages to these is they are actually, uh, there's no poles in the center since it's all an open frame. So uh, another 
thing it can serve double duty as is a temporary garage. So if you've got it for, you know, this other kind of stuff and in the middle of the winter you need to do some work on a car, you can put the tent up and pull it in there. Uh, the third reason I suggest the frame tent is your other series of tents with pole, that are pole supported have to have the ropes holding the poles upright and those ropes require daily maintenance. You have to go out, you have to tighten. Uh, depending on your soil conditions, a lot of times you have to redo the stakes into the ground. And uh, if you don't, uh, that tent will come down in the weather and the wind, guaranteed. You can't just set that tent up, walk away, and leave it. It will come down on you. Uh, in a bad storm, you might be out there every hour tightening them up, and that can be a real pain. With the frame tent, that's not a concern. It's got anchor points and tie-down points, but those are strictly to keep it from where if a really, really bad wind comes up, it doesn't blow away. Uh, and you can even, if you're putting a concrete slab on, put rebar in at the right spacing and set it down in, onto it uh, with the holes in the frame and have it anchored down. So that's my suggestion. All the tents come with a stovepipe jack. Um, there's military stoves that are cast, that are just a uh, straight sheet metal. For long term, I would suggest getting a cheap boxwood cast stove with some fire brick because it'll hold the heat much better and be much more efficient than those, those cheap metal stoves. All your military tent stove jacks are a 4-inch jack. Uh, most of your civilian wood stoves are 6-inch, so you will need the reducer, and it's a little bit more of a pain to find 4-inch pipe. So uh, plan for that in advance and have it. You want to keep uh, some repair material. They will all develop holes in them. Uh, vinyl tents are really bad where they're sewn. The stitching can stretch the stretch the holes in the wind. I use a product called Goop. It's just a, a clear glue. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it in most hardware stores. They make all kinds. They make regular Goop, outdoor Goop, marine Goop, sports Goop. Get the outdoor goop because it's actually made, or the marine goop, because they're made uh, to be more UV resistant so the sunlight won't kill them as bad. And then have some patch material, either the uh, the adhesive ripstop uh, parachute repair material I sell, or if you can get the seller of the tent to throw a couple square feet of material in that you can glue it with. Because uh, over the course of a year, you will get some holes in it one way or another. Hope that helps, and hope that gives you some ideas about... Uh, how to do tents. Uh, I do sell tents. I do not sell tents mail order. I, I, when a local customer wants one, I go out and contact my dealer network and try to find who's got the best deal and get one for them. I've never been comfortable selling the mail order because uh, they're a pain to ship. And uh, for me, since I don't do much truck freight shipment, it's expensive for me to do it and I have to pass that cost on. And on something that big, I'm really more comfortable doing it face-to-face -face, um, with a customer so that I can explain the tent to them and they can look at it and know, know exactly what they're getting. Uh, my suggestion is always find a local, find it as close as you can and go see the tent in person if you can. If not, still find it as close as you can because, you know, reasonably mobile, you know, with these tents still means four or 500 pounds you're throwing it in a pickup bed, and that's not cheap to ship. Hope that helps everybody. Uh, hope that gives everybody a little bit of understanding on military tents and all the, how they work. And uh, if anybody has any questions, you can reach me through the website at oldgrouch.com. Everybody have a great day. Yeah, everything he said, except I can't really talk much about the, the frame tents. I was, I was, you know, in Panama for the majority of my career in the military, either Panama or Honduras. 
And uh, since the U.S. military was at that point already planning to be out of Panama in just a few years after I would leave, not a lot of new stuff came down there. Uh, we were lucky to get Humvees. I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that we ever did get Humvees down there, uh, given the withdrawal was was preset. But I'm sure there was some government contract money involved in that. Anyway, um, I lived in a GP medium for six months. When Tim tells you a floor is not optional, it's mandatory, he means it. You can put up a GP medium tent with a wood floor, because we put up a lot of them, which is kind of what I want to talk about. I put up a few GP smalls in, in, in my military time. I put up, or part of putting up one GP large, and they are a monstrosity. I put up a lot of GP mediums in, in one go. I was part of, our, when we went to Honduras, the advanced party. We got to go there first, and they made that deal with us because we, when they started coming home, you get to come, you go first in, you're first out, right? It, it was the way this deployment was working. So it was like, yeah, we'll go a little bit earlier. There won't be any kind of people giving us a lot of crap. We'll have like three or four weeks to set this camp up where the brass isn't there and leave us alone, and then we'll get out, you know, a month earlier. Uh, well, we didn't get out a month earlier. We got out when everybody else did. In fact, I ended up being one of the last people to leave, so that didn't work out. We did get a month of not being harassed. That was that was pretty good. Uh, we didn't have a lot of resources either. But what we did is we went in, um, and the engineers were ahead of us, and we had just basically like crews, like a crew of engineers and a crew of just general labor scraped up for whoever's available to erect tents. And the engineers built basically decks that were just basically a wood frame deck and then overlaid plywood. And then we would set the tent up basically with the poles on that plywood and stake the everything down. And it is something that if two people really had to put up a GP medium, you could. I don't know how these frame tents work, but I would tell you that you really want more like a four-man crew for erecting and assembling a GP medium tent. It's more work than it looks like, and there's a... The poles go into a beam, and the beam goes across the top of the tent. That is a substantial piece of wood, and you really don't want it coming down on you because, honest to God, if it came down the right way, it's something that could do either serious injury or even kill somebody. And then there's a whole lot of driving wood stakes in the ground. So we put up, I think we put up almost 100 tents. Now, I didn't put up 100 myself, but, I mean, I think there were three crews, so say 30-ish tents apiece for GP Mediums alone that we set up as part of this advanced party. Each one of those tents in general had about eight guys living in it. Without a, a wood floor, we probably would have had knife fights, and the truth is you put eight soldiers together for six months in a tent, you, you get pretty damn close anyway. Um, so I definitely echo what he says. Now, the other thing with these tents, they have to have the stakes. They're a hazard. They're a hazard. So we put all these tents in, and, you know, we get a little bit of downtime, and some guys decide to go out and play Frisbee. One guy throws Frisbee to the other guy. He runs. He trips on one stake, falls on another stake. And th these are these are not like your little camping stake. These are like square, about one-inch square, solid, very heavy wood stakes that can handle being pounded into the ground. He falls, and his cheek hits the top of the stake, The steak goes through his cheek into his mouth, punching a hole, an inch size square, jagged, because this is not a sharp thing, hole through his cheek. So, what's command decide we have to do? 
fill sandbags and put a sandbag over every single stake. Well, what we found out real quick is that Hondurans would work real hard for a dollar a day apiece. Two dollars a day, they would do a great job. For three dollars a day, they would just smile while they worked. So we took up a pool and decided to be generous and pay every worker that wanted to do this work four dollars uh, a day per man. And we put our money together and we got about 50 Honduran laborers to come in and do all of that for us. And... Uh, That became a pattern that when we had stuff we really didn't want to do. If command didn't care, we would hire local labor to get it done. And uh, we had a lot of work to do anyway. So that would let one or two guys basically supervise that, and everybody else could see the things like building the road we were there to build. So that worked out. But after doing it, I would tell you, I think it's actually a good idea. When we were doing it, we weren't happy about it, especially until we figured out we could get somebody to do it for us. But... I would tell you if you're going to use those stakes, that putting a sandbag on the top of each one also helps with the stability issues that Tim mentioned. They do need daily maintenance. It's not just the stakes, the ropes themselves. So I would follow Tim's advice if you're going to do this. As a matter of living in it, I was 19. Would I, would I say it was like a, a horrible experience? No. Was I relatively comfortable Other than the temperature, you know, it was really hot in Honduras. I saw a day where a fly landed on my arm when I was sitting in a Humvee, and a fly landed on my arm and then just, like, fell over and died. I think he died of heat exhaustion. Um, so it was hot, but they did a pretty good job of keeping, you know, you shaded and what have you. We cooked our MREs on the roof. You would take the MRE, you'd get in the morning for lunch, and pull the foil pack out that had the meat entree in it, throw it up on the roof of the tent, and when you came back for lunch later in the day, it was all nice and sizzling hot. Um, but really think before you do this, um, the, the concept that it's going to be more mobile than like a trailer uh, uh, has me worried, because you're not going to want to set this up and take it down and set this up and take it down, and you're going to need flooring. You're going to need flooring. Anyway, uh, one of the last things, the day that we left... Or the, like the, the, the leaving period as we were taking these tents down, rather than ship all that plywood and framing wood back to Panama, it didn't make any sense. We gave it away to the locals. You ain't never seen people so happy to get a sheet of plywood. Makes you realize how good we have it here in the United States of America. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one here. This question is for Michael Jordan on the proper orientation when setting up beehives. So Michael, take it away. This is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisper of a bee-friendly company, here taking your questions on beekeeping, apiary management, and meads. I have a question from Jason on hive placement. What recommendations do you have on hive placements related to orientation and distance from obstacles such as trees or non-inhabited buildings or sheds? I understand the dangers of a hive and around people, however... What do beads need as far as direction and obstacles free flight path? Can hives be placed in the woods? Details. I'm a new beekeeper in North Carolina with two top bar, top bar hives. I'm going to be adding three more Langstroth hives next spring in hopes of building an apiary to sell small amounts of honey. I have over six acres I work, but however, only about an acre of land is where my house is. The rest of the land is wood, poplar, pine, oaks, as well as two small creeks. I have a two-year-old micro-orchard planted with apples, pears, peaches, and cherry trees. The neighbors are cool, 
and they're about to begin preparing a new area for new highs as well as the future ones. They want to give them the best home possible. Well, Jason, the question I'm going to take is a few routes. Um, first off, orientation and distance from obstacles based is, uh, you know, that's based on flight paths, heights off the ground, wind, sun, workspace, and all that stuff I just listed is only made easier for the keeper, not for the bees. As we know, we need to make sure that the sun hits the front porch of the hive. When it is set at the optimal location on the property, on the day with the least amount of sun. So in my geographical location of the world, December 20th to December 30th, is when I have the least amount of sun of the year. I need to set up my hive in a location on my property that the first peaking light that, that can come out and even touch my property hits the east, east side of that porch. Now that we've started to control the heat in the hive, now we do the wind. The wind plays a large role in keeping bees. We need to find that sunny location that's out of the wind on the property. Uh, think of about blowing stones and water droplets the size of Volkswagen bugs hitting you. Uh, that is what raindrops looks like to a bee. So we need to be out of the wind. Now when it comes from distance from obstacles such as trees or non-inhabited buildings and sheds or occupied homes even, we're going to train our bees. Um, here's one thing I don't think people are learning in the art of beekeeping. It's animal husbandry. You're going to train your bees to do things that they're not normally doing in life, i.e. taking honey for profit and food, or using smoke to move the bees from box to box or from side to side. It is just like raising chickens. We're going to take the eggs out for food and profit, or we're going to ring a bell or bang on the gate to move them from paddock to paddock. It's all about the same. It's about how much time you spend with them in training them. Now, I feel a new keeper, one to three years of keeping, about a five-foot clearance around the hive for working is needed. Now, this also depends on the type of hive, stand, location of your hive, and what you'll be doing for products. And we'll get to a little bit of that. Um, a new keeper me needs some room to work with his highs because it's spooky at first for the few, first few times. I mean, try to pick up a dime off the ground in a spacesuit while small pissed off bugs are trying to sting the hell out of you. It's going to be crazy. But be calm, take a deep breath, and embrace it. Some pe people put hives next to each other, stacking the hive bodies up and down on each other, uh, they stack them on the ground. You know, I have sl sliding hive stands that allows me to place the hive bodies on long poles in the air so I can slide them up and down to work on them. But that's all on how much room you need to work your hive. Um, I say five feet is a good place to start because it gives you room. You know, flight paths are adjusted by the bees. You know, I, I place trampoline nets up to make the bees fly up and over places making them get higher in their flight path. I do this in walkways or where the kids play. I incorporate these things. But I want to look I want you want you to look how the bees really work, man. If you really want to know, look at how the bees work. Most of the time, they're about 20 to 40 feet in the air, living on limbs of trees or in trees themselves, darting in the branches of leaves, whipping high in the air. 
Jonathan Powell does a class in Switzerland, Poland, and Germany on natural tree beekeeping called Butenheimer in Germany, or Bokanek in Polish and Russian. Uh, you can read more about this type of beekeeping on a site called beeswings.net. But they are cutting into old trees about 30 feet in the air and putting hives in the tree. Now you have to climb the trees, repel down to the hive, and put lifting apparatuses and build scaffoldings. Some of his classes are only like 10 to 15 people because it's it's an all-day adventure. And, you know, it's, it's like when I take my rafting trips down the white water to get to an apiary. It's a little uh, out of the way to do stuff like that, but it is more an organic and method way of using it. You know, the Egyptians used to cut a log in half and hang it in the trees. You know, so... There are a lot of ways to get the bees in the trees. But using this method, you can show not only hanging your hives in the tree, but, you know, they're in the trees, and they're doing this in Kenya hives and in Egypt. Um, if you're cutting into the tree, they're moving to what they call the Slovak style of beekeeping, where the frames slide in and out of the tree. So, you know, when you're asking about can it be kept in the woods, you know, you can make them the woods. You know, it comes down to using the devices to train your bees to move them to the path that you want them to, to give yourself room to work the bees in a hot suit. And lastly, do not put the bees where it's going to be in a lawsuit for you. I mean, you're there to work the bees, help the bees, but if you really wanted to do the best for the bees, you would leave them the hell alone. But since we're using them for pollination, profit, food source, and let's face it, if we had lots of money, you'd be a commercial beekeeper. But we try to do the best organically for the bee. A commercial beekeeper does many products. And let's face it, in my backyard, I'm looking for a little honey and a little bit of wax. I'm not looking to move them for pollination runs. I'm not looking for big bulk cells for honey contracts. You're looking for the manipulation in your area. Give yourself about five foot of room to work with that beehive in that suit. Stack your beehives in an area that you think that you can easily access them for you. Hell, if you want to, build tree stands, make clubhouses, and get your kids involved and get them inside those clubhouses. They're off the ground, away from predators. Heck, it might be a good adventure to, train, to change some of those trees into observation lookouts for hunting and beekeeping. I just want you to think about when you're talking about giving yourself room and space and flight orientation it's a system of animal husbandry and you want to make it easy for you and for what you're keeping hey i am michael jordan the bee whisperer of a bee friendly company reminding you to get your honey from a beekeeper that you respect help out with buying products from cottage industries because we all had to start somewhere and remember to always help your fellow man because one day you need, might need help too. Before I go on to the, the next question, this one coming up is going to be for Darby Simpson. I want to kind of talk something about bees becoming accustomed to people that work with them. And I don't really work with my bees a lot, like in my suit, taking hives apart, because uh, I'm spoiled and I have a great guy named Jason that does all the really heavy lifting for me with my beehives. But I do spend a lot of time out there with my bees and having my bees fly around me. And when I go feed them, I have external feeders where I just pull a jar out and put a new jar in. And generally I can do that, and the bees are pretty passive. They don't really bother me. Well, when Michael was here for the workshop, 
he opened up one of the hives and he pissed off the bees. And we had a couple that were flying around and harassing people. And they were just like, and they weren't really, nobody got stung. But they were doing the stuff where like, well, they'll fly around you and they'll, they'll like headbutt you where they fly into your face. And it's basically saying back off. It's their nice way of saying back off. So this only went on for a little while. Michael handed out some incense to calm the bees down and what have you. But I'm walking around, the bees are flying all over the place. So there's one. And so immediately you could see that like the bees are like, okay, we're pissed. But this dude, he's here all the time. We don't care about him except for this one bee who still was a lenient bee with me, because all the other bees like chilled out and went home and back to their bee duties. And this one bee is like flying around and just irritating the heck out of everybody. It lasted so long, I finally started swatting at her and going, will you sting me and get it over with? She wouldn't sting me. At one point, and there's multiple witnesses to this, including Michael, who said he's never seen anything like this before. This bee flew up into my face and straight into my mouth. I caught her in my mouth, not all like not all the way in. Like I caught her with my with my gums and teeth softly and went and spit her out. And she flew and continued to fly around and harass people and never stung me. I do believe that bees do become accustomed to certain events and things going on and people around them. And if they they, they become accustomed to this, they they generally kind of like go, hey. These things are okay. These things that normally might upset us, or this person that normally might upset us doesn't. And you think like it's just you have really calm bees, but in the end, they've actually become conditioned to you to a degree. My my question for Michael on this, and we'll kind of throw this as an aside to him at some point, is okay, great, but these bees like are constantly dying and repopulating. And if I've been at my, if I haven't been messing with my hive for like two months, you would think most of the bees that knew me are gone. Is there some imprint that's left behind in, in the breeding? What? I mean, because, you know, I guess I'm never really that long without going out to do something with my bees. But it just seems like, especially in spring, you know, when you got all the new bees and all the new brood, that it would take them a while. And they don't seem to really require that. But yes, I, Jack Spirico, caught a bee in between my lips and spit it out. And she did not sting me. Just thought you guys would get a kick out of that. Okay, next question here is for Darby Simpson. And it's about grazing animals on steep slopes. Hey, Darby, take it away. Hey, Jack. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Justin's question about how to effectively graze some really steep slopes on his farm in northern Kentucky. Uh, Justin's having some issues with uh, cattle that are really starting to wear some deep ruts in some frequently used paths, uh, both vertically and horizontally on these steep slopes. Um, Justin has mentioned that he's actually got some slopes that are 40 to 50 percent on average. And um, tell you what, Justin, that's a, a pretty tough thing to deal with and I think there are some things you can do to uh, you know, to help yourself out um, and uh, you know to continue to rotationally graze these areas but at the same time not allow the animals to do damage to them so um, the first thing I want to tell you is is when you are grazing these areas um, and I can see from the uh, the, the Google image uh, overhead map uh, that where your, your paddocks are at. You've, you've been rotating the animals. But the one thing I want to tell you to do is you really need to make certain that you're rotating on a daily basis. And I don't know if your infrastructure is set up uh, such that you can do that. 
but that's really a uh, uh, investment that you probably need to make so that you can move the animals every day. You mentioned that you know they're using these these paths over and over and over, and cattle are really creatures of, of habit, and they will walk the exact same path each and every day, single file, uh, as you have found, and wear the ground down really, really bad. Um, and when you have slopes like this, that's going to create problems. So first thing is, when, when you are grazing these areas, rotate them every day, move them every 24 hours. Um, the other thing you want to do is when you're setting up your, your daily paddocks, try to try to break them up differently every time so that they don't have access to these same paths each and every time just to make them uh, you know, kind of form uh, different patterns. Uh, if they're walking back to get water, maybe set up a lane so that they have to take a different path. Um, uh, you know, maybe it's on the east side of the slope. Uh, you know, for a, a couple of weeks, and then when you come back around uh, in a month or two, then you do it on the west side of the slope or something, just to get them to use different um, uh, paths back and forth. Uh, also, think about going in and planting some different annuals. Um, you could broadcast these by hand, possibly, uh, but some quick-growing annuals, you know, like like oats or sorghum Sudan grass, um, things that the cattle like to uh, to graze. Uh, you could do, you know, turnips in late fall. Uh, you could do uh, just an annual ryegrass in the spring. That's really cheap. Um, just some different things for them to graze. You want to try and get some root mass down. Um, and, and that quick growing forage, you know, they're going to trample a lot of that down, but that's great. That's going to get a lot of, you know, carbon material on the surface. It's going to uh, help slow down the rainwater, slow down erosion, things of that nature. You might consider planting some perennials. Um, and I'm not too far from you being in, you know, central Indiana, your northern Kentucky, something that grows really well here. And that cattle absolutely love is mulberry. If you could get some mulberry bushes established in some areas, the cows will keep those grazed down. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched cattle graze mulberry, but man, they just annihilate that stuff. They absolutely love it. Start planting maybe some things like mulberries, different perennials in some of these areas where you've got some erosion give them some, um, uh, you know, different things to graze on, and at the same time, again, getting some root structure in the ground to help hold the ground together. Um, the biggest thing I want to tell you, though, Justin, is when, when you're dealing with slopes like this, this is the same kind of slopes that I saw out in West Virginia when I uh, was asked to go out there and help Permaethos put together some grazing plants. You really need to stay off these areas when it's super wet. It, it you're just you're gonna be doing more damage than you can repair in the wet season. So you know, really from like the beginning of March through the end of June to middle of July, you want to be very cautious about when you're you're going in and grazing these areas. You want to give them some larger areas. You don't want them really you know, compacted down. Um, you just don't want too much hoof action in too small of an area, or they're just going to do so much damage. Um, it's really going to be hard to stay ahead of it and repair it. So, I would tell you, you know, you've got these these high ridges that you're using to make hay, and I don't know what your situation is. If you've got that leased out, 
to a tenant farmer, you didn't say, but if it's me, I'm fencing around that hay field and I'm grazing up top in the wet part of the, the summer. And then as we get into the drier part of the summer in the fall, that's when I'm going to really focus on grazing on these hillsides when there's not so much moisture in the ground so that when that cow is stepping and putting 250 to 400 pounds of stress on a little four inch diameter area where their hoof is that we're not damaging the ground damaging the the plants that are there destroying the plants and and creating these erosion issues and i know that's probably not what you want to hear but when you've got slopes like this that's really the best way to manage that from a rotational grazing standpoint you just don't want to be in there when it's wet and um you've got these high points so if you can graze up there that's what i would tell you to do is fence that hay field off maybe look at sowing a few different things out there to start converting it from hay to perennial grazing you can still go in and make hay there's nothing wrong with making hay on a grazing area if that's what you need to do but that's that's what i would do um if you're gonna have animals in there when it is wetter you you mentioned in your email using a smaller ruminant something like sheep or goats or whatever that's what you need to do. You just need to have animals that are going to have less uh, dramatic impact with their hoof uh, on those areas. I will tell you that would not include pigs. They will absolutely destroy that slope. You would not want pigs in there at all except for like the end of July through August and September when it's super dry um, in, in October as well. If you had any kind of nut-bearing trees in there, that would be a great place to put pigs. But um, yeah, smaller ruminants, goats and sheep, things of that nature in the wet part of the year, and then your cattle in the drier part of the year. Um, I hope that that helps you out. Um, that's a pretty tough thing to deal with and manage. I've been in that part of Kentucky. I know what it looks like. It is it is tough, but that's really the best thing is to let that ground rest when it's wet and let those annuals grow, let those grasses grow, and then go in there and graze at the appropriate times. So anyway, Justin, that's what I got for you, man. Appreciate you sending in the question. Hope it uh, helps you out. If you have any uh, follow-up questions from this, please feel free to shoot me an email, and I will uh, happily help you out. Uh, for those of you who would like to learn more about me, um, you can go out to my website at darbysimpson.com and read a bunch of free blog articles I have out there. Uh, currently uh, in the middle of doing a series on how to select a good farmer's market, which is pretty key uh, if you want to go and make a buck at this uh, crazy regenerative agricultural stuff. Uh, there's all kinds of free information out there that you can uh, read and learn from. For those of you wanting to go deeper, I do offer one-on-one consultations. And if you are a uh, MSB supporter, you do get a 10% discount on those consulting services. You can find the discount code in the uh, uh, member section of the MSB. As always, Jack, thanks for sending the question in, and take care. Everybody have a great weekend. See ya. All right, next question is for Ben Falk on setting up automated watering of trees uh, from someone who has a well but not a pump, uh, a pressure pump system, and wants to know maybe they can manually pump the water upgrade and use a cistern for gravity feed or, or what have you. Uh, question comes from Steve. Ben, how can we help out Steve? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Um, the question about automatically watering trees. Um, well, like I would often do with a lot of questions is start by asking you some more questions um, in return because 
I don't know where in the world you are. Is this a, a very hot and dry climate? Is it hot and, and humid or wet? Is it cold and dry? Is it, you know, summer rain, winter rain climate? Um, what kind of soils are you on? Um, you know, what's the capacity of the well? Uh, what's your availability, availability of mulch and, and your time and, and equipment, uh, skills and tools available to, to your capacity to apply mulch? Um, what kinds of trees are they, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm just going to do is, is assume that you really need to automatically water trees, which I would have my doubts about, but maybe you've done your homework and you, and you, you find that you definitely do need to automatically water them. Very few trees need to be automatically watered. That's why I, I would say I have my doubts about it. Unless your soils are very sandy and you have basically no mulch down, um, you don't need to water very often trees, depending on your climate. Um, so you, you mentioned it needs to be automatic. Um, so I'm going to assume you have really sandy soils and you can't mulch m m much. Um, if you can, if you have can mulch a bit or you don't have all sandy soils, you have some silt or ideally even some clays and you can mulch well, then you could mulch once a week by hand 40 trees isn't very much and not have to water them automatically at all. You could water when's necessary, as in when it's not raining or when you're in between, you know, real big stretches of uh, hot stretches without rain. Uh, you, you get my point. So if you do need to automatically water them or even if not, um, I think a big part of your question really gets at what kind of, um, you know, water system do you set up? So generally in your situation, you have water downhill, that's static water, not like a moving stream where you could do like a ram pump, but static, a static water source like a well, um, which sounds like it's, it says it's a 30 dug well, I assume it's 30 feet down. Um, you can do what's called solar direct and just set up a solar panel and a cistern at the top of your slope, at least a handful of feet or so above your highest tree that you need to water. And when the sun hits that panel, it runs a slow re revolution pump and fills the cistern and then activates a float valve when the cistern is full so it stops pumping. Um, that avoids batteries and a lot of complexity that you don't need to um, come to depend on. That's called Solar Direct. I don't know the elevation of your site. You said you have 40 trees uphill, um, about 100 to 125 feet away from the well. That sounds like it's you know a, a, a horizontal distance or a distance over the ground, but I don't know what kind of vertical distance it is. That matters more than the horizontal distance in general. Um, assuming since it's only 125 to 120, 100 to 125 feet from the well, even if you're on 100% grade, uh, which I doubt you are, you're not going to be, um, well, no matter what, no matter what's, uh, yeah, even if you're on 100% grade, that means you're not going to be um, more than about 100, yeah, you're going to be less than 100 feet above um, the water source that you have to pump. That's pretty easy to do with most solar direct systems. But I would look into like Dankoff solar pumps, D-A-N-K-O-F-F. Um, they're a good resource. And just start Googling around on like slow 
solar direct pumping situations. Backwood Solar uh, is a great resource as well. They're out of Idaho. Um, but your vertical draw, your head that you're going to have to move up is more important than your horizontal lin or lineal distance, which is what you mentioned. You didn't mention the horizontal, uh, the vertical distance. Um, it'd be better if you're 50 feet or less, ideally. You could rely on a smaller, lower energy pump that will last longer. Um, you may have to worry about freezing uh, with the cistern. So that, that's something to take into account and how to drain that for winter. Again, without knowing your climate, you know, these questions are, are already myriad, you know, multi, multifaceted, uh, problems to address that bring up many, many more questions for most of them. Um, even if I did know your climate and without knowing your climate, it's, uh, it's, it's a whole nother ball of variables. Um, so. That's some strategies to get at it and some other important questions that need to be answered in order to actually frame the larger answer that you're getting at. Uh, but good luck to you, and um, I hope you can avoid an automatic watering system and just be able to water them by hand uh, whenever you need to water them, which shouldn't be too often unless you're in a very extreme situation, soils and climate-wise. Good stuff uh, there from Ben. What I'm going to start doing in the future, and I, I haven't done this due to privacy concerns, so if you send me a question and you don't want the council member to have your email from now on, you need to tell me that. I'm going to include the email address of the person who sent me the email in the uh, write-up for the council member, so if they have anything they'd like to ask you, they can, they can send you off an email. Um, I try to do a lot to make sure that no one has any privacy concerns whatsoever uh, with the way I handle your questions that come to me in personal information. That's why you'll always hear me say, you know, it's Bob in Ohio or Tom in South Dakota or something like that because I think there's a lot of bombs, Bob's in Ohio and Tom's in South Dakota and Mary's in Maryland. So that doesn't identify anybody any more than, than I think they would want. Um, sometimes I even have people say, like, Don't use my name at all. I don't even want my first name yet made. So I'll be like, well, it's like Chris from Kentucky, and it really was like Bill from Tennessee. And so that it just so there's a connection there. But I always try to respect privacy. Um, no information that you give me on my website ever goes to anybody else ever, ever. The, the only tracking there is done with basically a, a program called Woopra. That data stays all to me, and it, it's just so I know my visitors and stuff like that. Um, so I, I work really hard to make sure that everybody's data stays private. So, But I do think, because I've said before, please tell people like when you ask a question like this, where are you in the world and stuff like that, I'm going to start doing that with the expert council members, which I think we can all trust. But if you ever send me a question, you're like, but I don't want my email address given away, I, I, I will not do that, okay? Then make sure you have all the details in the details section. The last question for a council member today is on John Pug for John Pugliano, and it's an interesting one. Um, how should we secure our liquid assets during a walking to freedom move across the country? The, the liquid assets are in the form of cash, precious metals, and various caliber implements. And back around, my wife, two kids, and I are planning on moving from New York, uh, North Carolina, Kentucky, uh, in springtime from California. We're planning to have pods delivered, which we may pack and have delivered to our new home while we drive the two cars. I'm leaning toward packing my guns in a safe in the pods and taking the rest with us in the car. Any suggestions would be appreciated. Stan, John, how would you 
move significant cash, precious metals, etc., long distance across the country during a move and stay safe and secure. Well, hello, Stan. Thanks for your question, and congratulations on your decision to walk to freedom. The part of the country that you're going to be moving to is beautiful. I think you're going to really like it there. As far as your question about securing your assets uh, while you travel, you're going to be moving with your wife and a couple kids and taking two cars. California to North Carolina, Kentucky, that's obviously a, probably a three- or a four-day drive, particularly with kids if you have to make a lot of stops. So what do you do with your valuables in a situation like that? Well, you ask about if putting your guns in a gun safe and then locking it up in one of those pods would be secure. I don't really know how many guns you're talking about and what their value is. So it's kind of hard to say, but my gut feel would be that, no, that's not a good idea. And let me give you a couple reasons why. First of all, I have used those moving pods. I do have experience with those as well as traditional moving companies. And um, although I do like those pods, I do highly recommend them, they're not very secure. You're going to put a padlock on the front of it, and then, you know, the sides and everything around it are really just flimsy uh, fiberglass. Depending upon what service you use to transport those, uh, there's not going to be a great deal of security. They could be left unattended in like a fenced-in storage area, uh, possibly when they are first brought to the terminal. When those pods are being transported either via truck or rail service, they're obviously out in the elements and it would be very easy for anybody to break into them. And since those pods are not very secure, you know, for those reasons, that's why I wouldn't ship guns in a gun safe that are high value. Now, having said all that, let me backtrack a little bit. My concern with putting these guns in a gun safe and then loading them into the pod is that you're really advertising to whoever might see that happen that, hey, I'm putting valuable guns into this pod. And remember, it just has a, a little padlock on the front and it's, you know, flimsy fiberglass walls. Anybody could easily break into that. And that's particularly true of the employees that work for that transportation company. I'll tell you a personal story. One time I was moving and I had a desktop Macintosh computer. I had saved the original packaging and, and box. And so when I moved, I packed it back up in that original packaging. It was real secure. It had all the styrofoam. I taped it up. And then I hired a moving company to load up the truck and transport my goods to my new location. Well, guess what happened? I advertised to everybody that that box contained an expensive computer. And so consequently, during the shipment of my goods, one of the transportation employees stole my Macintosh computer. Now, had I had that packaged in a nondescript brown box, no one would have known what was in it, and the chance of it getting stolen, I think, would have been a whole lot less likely. So from an operational security standpoint, I would be a little bit concerned using the gun safe because I wouldn't want to telegraph to everybody, hey, here's where all the valuables are. Even if someone didn't see you put the safe into the pod, if for whatever reason that pod would get broken into, the safe is going to be very obvious, and that would be the first thing I would think they would go for. So I wouldn't advertise it by putting them in the safe. And I'll just tell you something personal that I would do. I would not recommending that you would do this, and I don't know what the gun laws are in California, so may definitely not want to do it there. If I had just a few regular hunting rifles, you know, if I had a shotgun and, and say, a .30-06, and I wanted to ship those in a pod, now, personally, I would do that. They're not very high-dollar items, uh, and they're easy to conceal. Rather than putting those in a gun safe or even in their gun cases, what I would do is, you know, I'd get a couple of those big boxes that you put your wardrobes in where you can actually hang your clothes up. You know, they're the big, tall, I don't know, they're, they're probably about five foot tall and two or three feet uh, wide and square. And I'd load those up with my clothes, and then in each of those boxes, I'd you know slip in one of the rifles, tuck it down in the back. 
No one's going to suspect it's there. If someone did break into the pod, they're just going to see a box full of clothes and not know that there's a gun in it. So just personally, that's what I would do. But in your case, it sounds like you have more guns than that and probably you have a significant more value. So I would personally keep those with me as I traveled. I'd keep them in my own personal vehicle. If you have too many to fit in the vehicle with the kids and all, then I would rent a small U-Haul trailer to tow behind me. I think that would be worth the expense and the inconvenience considering that you're protecting a valuable investment. As I drove across the country, I would also take precautions. Now, you're probably not going to get broken into and robbed if you have just a nondescript uh, small U-Haul trailer that you're towing behind you. But at the same time, you know, when I stopped at a restaurant or at a rest stop or something, I'd make sure that I was sitting at a table by the window where my vehicle was in plain sight. And then again, depending upon the value of the rifles that I'm transporting, the higher the value, the higher the level of security and paranoia I'm going to have about it. So if I have some really expensive guns, I'm not going to want to leave them in a hotel parking lot overnight, and I'm also probably not going to want to lug those into my hotel room. So if I was concerned about the safety of those weapons, you know, when I got to the hotel, I'd tuck my wife and kids in bed, make sure they were safe. I'd probably sleep in the car. That way, I'd be right next to the, the car or the trailer. I'd know if someone was breaking into it, and I could take the necessary precautions to protect my property. Again, when I have them packed in that U-Haul, I probably wouldn't have them in a gun safe. I'd probably have them hidden and tucked away with other household items so that they're not obvious. That way, if someone just randomly breaks into the trailer, they're not necessarily going to see the guns. Also, when it comes to packing those rifles in the trailer, I'm going to make sure that they're very secure and protected should I be in an accident. Because I think driving from, you know, California to the East Coast, you're more likely to be in a wreck than you are to be robbed. So do your best to make sure that should the trailer or the car get hit by another vehicle, the guns are packed in such a way that they're adequately protected. And then as far as things like your cash and maybe precious metals that you're going to be moving, when it comes to cash, personally, I wouldn't want to be driving across the country with, you know, several thousand dollars in my pocket. So I would just put that into my checking account when I got to wherever I was going. I would draw it from the bank and get it back. If for whatever reason you're someone that doesn't like banks or you have, you know, in excess of $10,000 and you're worried about the government tracking that money, I would personally rather just take my chances having the money in the bank than having it stolen from me when I'm at a rest stop somewhere in the interstate. Now, the precious metals could be more of a problem just from the sheer fact that if a thief would find them, it would be a whole lot easier to grab a handful of gold pieces and run away with it than it would a safe full of rifles. But it really comes back again to how much are you talking about transporting? You know, if you have a couple ounces of gold and maybe a pound or two or silver, it's not that big of a deal. On the other hand, uh, you know, if you had $20,000 in, in silver, that's probably close to 100 pounds. So that could be more of a problem. But I would handle it pretty much the same way that I described with the rifles. I wouldn't trust it in a pod unless it was a very small, fairly insignificant amount. Again, I would tuck that away and pack it in among the clothes and things so that if the pod was broken into, it wouldn't be easily discovered. I would do that same thing if I had it in my car or in a trailer, a U-Haul trailer that I was towing behind my car. I would have it packed away in several discrete locations so that if someone did break in, it would be hard for them to find. And perhaps if they found one of my caches of silver, they wouldn't know that there were three or four others hid somewhere else in the trailer. Now, one other idea, too, for the cash money and for the silver and gold, depending upon how much you have, again, if you have a fairly small amount, you could very easily just carry that on your person, perhaps with a money belt around your waist. I think that would be a fairly secure method to carry it. Again, being very cautious, 
when you go into restaurants or rest stops or hotels or anything like that. Stan, the other thing I'd have you consider is to be aware of what the firearms laws are in each of the states that you'll be driving through. And I'm not concerned about the guns that you're transporting, but I'm assuming that if you are transporting a large, valuable cache of weapons and gold and silver and things, that you're going to want to be personally armed. And depending upon what state you're in, that can be a problem. So make sure that you have the appropriate concealed carry documents that you need or that you at least know how that weapon should be stored to meet the appropriate state and federal laws while you're transporting, and then also have a plan how to load it and engage it should you run into some thieves that want to take your property away from you. Well, Stan, again, congratulations. Good luck on your move as you walk to freedom. I'll also pass this question back over to Jack. I'd be curious to hear what suggestions and recommendations you'd make to Stan. Thanks for the question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. I think it's a great answer, and I'll, I'll throw a few more things in here. Um, number one, when John heard pod, he took it to literally mean the pods that they call pods. That may not be what the fellow that asked the question means. When we've moved three times now, we've used AMF, and... What they bring to the house isn't really a pod, it's a semi-trailer, and it is pretty secure. If you were to get into one of those through the sides or back or whatever, you'd, you'd have to use a cutting torch. Now, could you pop the lock off with a pair of bolt cutters and get in there? You, you, you certainly could, but that's the kind of thing we're talking about. We're not talking about fiberglass, we're talking about steel. And uh, again, you're, you're using a, a, a cutting torch if you're getting in there any way other than opening the door. Uh, and that does change the dynamic a little bit. Uh, I definitely second the U-Haul trailer uh, as, a, as an option. I, I second that for a totally different reason, honestly. When you have a moving company move your stuff across the country, generally speaking, you need to be there when they deliver it. You're going to have this delivery window, and what will happen is they'll take your stuff to a holding location, and you'll have only one or two or three days to, to pick from that they'll bring it, and it can be inconvenient. And the only real way to mitigate that inconvenience is to get to your new house um, a couple days before your window's going to exist. So pretty much there goes your freight out the door, and you're leaving as soon as they, they come and get it. Um, we even, the last move we did, since the, the truck driver knew how to get there and everything, we had everything locked up and ready to go, and we left. And the truck picked it up that, so we left in the morning, truck picked it up that night. That means you're showing up at your new house with none of your stuff. So having that U-Haul trailer lets you take, you know, stuff so you can basically camp out in your new house till the rest of your stuff gets there. A lot of convenience items and stuff that you can't just fit in a truck or a, the cab of a truck or what have you. So that's definitely, I second that. Since you have two vehicles, you might even consider getting two of them. That will reduce the amount of space you need inside your moving vehicle, and it'll save you some money. So I'm totally with John. So, so what I did is I took my expensive guns that I was really worried about, and I transported them in my vehicle to this house. So I had control the whole time. And I took a lot of my lower-cost guns that I'm not that worried about, and I rolled them up in blankets and stuff like that, and we did put them into the, the, the trailer. And we, we packed most of them. The, they were the first things. They, so they were like hidden inside our, our chest of drawers and things like that. That was all the way up against the bulkhead of the trailers. So if you you're gonna get one of them trailers, you're gonna pop a lock off, and we had the damn thing stacked. All our stuff's in there, 
and is this pile of junk. And I mean, getting back there is is a trial. I mean, you have to pretty much unload the whole thing to get back there. So no one's going to do that unless they think it's worth it. So most of our valuable stuff that we decided to go ahead and transport that way, we put up all the way against that bulkhead on the front side. And it all made it here just fine. Um, as far as precious metals, I'm a believer that you know the best thing you can do with that is get a good quality fire safe and bury that thing in the trunk or a toolbox or something where it's hard to find in your vehicle. Uh, or if you have a trailer, you can put it in the trailer and just follow the same procedure. The stuff that you're most concerned about somebody getting their hands on, put that up against the bulkhead of the trailer because, again, they're not as secure as a semi-trailer, but you pretty much need a cutting to at least uh, like a you know one of those uh, – Uh, cutting tools, like, what am I trying to think of? Like, it's like a saw, but you hold it like a grinder wheel. You need something like at least to that level to get into there. So if somebody does manage to pop a lock and, and, and lift it up, well, you need is a bunch of junk in front of them that's not really worth anything and anything valuable all the way up against the side. Rather than sleep in your car, my suggestion is you're not going to make that drive in one day. You're probably going to make it in three. Okay? It's going to be with kids and women And, you know, I often say that it's surprising the speed that I can move across the country unencumbered by a female bladder, right? But if I've got a woman with me, we're going to be taking more stops. It's just the way it is. Get used to it, guys. It ain't never going to change. And if you got kids, more so. So I would strategically plan your move into about, you know, three legs that you know you can make comfortably. You're not pulling in on the midnight oil at two o'clock in the morning and feeling like your eyes are burning, getting four hours of sleep and getting back on the road. No. And find, just accept the expense. Find really nice hotels along the way that are really secure, that have allowances for parking larger vehicles like yours. And park it where it's going to be safe and have a good night with your family and go to bed. In fact, sometimes if you talk to a really nicer hotel uh, in situations like that, they'll make allowances for, if they're not booked heavy, move in the middle of the week when hotels aren't booked heavy, to park it like right out in front, right where it's in view of the desk and all of that stuff. And the likelihood of it being broken into there, really, really low. So that's another way that you can strategically plan that move. So those are some of my ideas, adding and building on to what, what John said. Um, the other option that you could consider is you get your new house, and you have, let's say, a floor safe put in it. Dad takes one of the vehicles and a U-Haul and makes a run you know, across the border all the way out, delivers everything there, drops a U-Haul off. Gets on an airplane with a one-way ticket and flies home, right? So you have to take a, a, a cab or an Uber to the airport, or it, depending on how long it's going to be there, you park your, your vehicle at the airport and just go pick it up and pay the parking. It's up to you, but it's probably better to take a cab or an Uber to the airport, leave the car parked at the house, plug a fake TV and a couple lights on timer so it looks like somebody's living there already. Real valuables are already in the floor safe that you already had installed. Dad flies back. Now, mom, kids, everybody's in one car together. Much easier logistically on the road. Get another U-Haul, do it again, little U-Haul trailer. You have a significant amount of comfort items until the rest of your stuff gets there that way. Yes, it's a hard deal for dad, but sometimes if it's possible and, 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 and viable, dads do the hard stuff for their families. 
This is exactly how we moved to Pennsylvania. It is exactly how we moved from Pennsylvania back to Texas. And it, it, on some levels, it's, it's exactly how we moved from Texas to Arkansas and back. I did that. I got some stuff together and, and, and took it up there in advance. Now, when we moved down here, Dorothy and I did it all together because we were coming back to see. It was just another uh, opportunity to see family. But we brought stuff in in a couple phases, plus had the big truck. By the way, if you're a prepper... Moving sucks, okay? Can I just say that? Moving sucks. I feel like this. If we ever have to move again, if I can't sell it or give it away, I'm going to set it on fire. Um, the move from Arkansas was the most brutal one for us. We had that place set up as kind of a standalone property where we could just go up there and show up. And then we took all our stuff there. And when we left that place, we had no idea what we were dealing with. It was, uh, it was pretty insane. So a lot of times... Another way to make your moves a little easier is like this. You rent another thing. It's called a dumpster. And you start going through your stuff. And if you can give it away to charity or something, fine. If it's something you really can't give it away, throw it in the dumpster. Get rid of it. And lighten your load. Because we had some things that we moved from Texas to Pennsylvania, and then we moved back. And when we left that house, I'm like, we got to get rid of some of this stuff. Because it, it's still in the boxes it was packed into when we moved to Pennsylvania. And people have a tendency to hold on to stuff. And I understand why. But in the end, I'm a big believer that, you know, I'm not a religious guy, but I, I quote, you know, uh, wisdom wherever I find it. I don't care if it's from Snoopy Comics or from the Bible. And I believe that the coat that hangs in your closet that you don't need should belong to your neighbor. I really do. I think that there's a lot of stuff that people hang on to that could go to somebody who needs it, somebody that doesn't have a lot of extra stuff. And uh, so that's just my little PSA of the day there. I want to finish up with uh, just a little message for everybody out there that's uh, kind of like me. You're kind of setting your ways in some ways. Now, you're open to new things, but when it comes to who you really are, it ain't going to change. You ain't going to make any apologies for it. A lot of music that would fit that, but there's a country song. It's not that old that I actually really like by Montgomery Gentry called She Couldn't Change Me. And it really makes me think of myself when I listen to it because that's how I've always been with everybody, with relationships with women. And that's great because now I found, a, you know, I found a woman 20 years ago uh, that it's hard to believe it's 20 years, but th that we fit together that way. We didn't have to pretend to be somebody else. And... I've, I've made friends and people, you know, I've explained before that I'm very loyal and it's easy to do so when you choose your friends the way that I do. It, it makes me think of a movie. Remember the movie Tombstone? And uh, there's a point where everybody's kind of sitting around the, 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 the fire out in the, on the range and they've been hunting down the bad guys and Doc Holliday's there and one of the guys says... Uh, Doc, you're dying, man. You know, you got, he had tuberculosis. It's a true story, you know. And I said, you're dying. What are you doing out here in this? And he says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And the guy says, Hell, Doc, I got a lot of friends. And, and Wyatt says, I don't. And that really doesn't need any further of an explanation. And if you want to be that kind of loyalty to someone, you have to be who you are so you, they both, the both of you know what you're getting into. And I think there's something that's been lost with authenticity in this world, and especially in the world of media and entertainment, people start thinking to themselves before they say something, if I say this, will it cost me? Will it hurt me? Will it piss people off? 
You know, and, and we've seen celebrities and what have you damaged because some dirty laundry was aired and came out. You know, I've always lived my life in a way where I don't worry about what anybody might say and reveal about me because I've already revealed it all myself. I've probably pissed off every single person that listens to this show at least ten times if you've listened to it more than, than 20 episodes. And, you know, there's nothing shocking you're ever going to hear, and I'm not going to change me or what I do to please anybody else. But that's really not about me. That, I'm saying that's how your life should be, too. That doesn't mean you don't compromise. It doesn't mean that, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, take the people in your life that are important to you and say, I'll give a little if you will too and, and find solutions and take care of each other. But it means the overall macro, man, who you really are. You're not going to change. The funny thing about it is sooner or later people tend to gravitate toward people like that. They end up with a lot of people that really like them and they end up with a lot of people that maybe don't 100% like them, but they respect them. That's the kind of person each one of you should be. Think about this weekend as you go through it, and remember, this has been Jack Spirico once again, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes I think what turned her on was my old broke-down boots. She wanted her real cowboy, it was a face she was going through.
Good James.